Welcome to Foolish Voices, a Company of Fools podcast. Company of Fools is a professional theater based in Sun Valley, Idaho, and is a proud part of the Sun Valley Museum of Art. More information on Company of Fools and the museum can be found online at svmoa.org. Welcome to Foolish Voices. I'm Scott Palmer, Producing Artistic Director of Company of Fools. And on this show, we talk to a wide range of theater artists, both here in Sun Valley and all across the world, about how the current global health crisis is impacting their work, about their creative lives, and about their hopes for the future of our art form. Please consider supporting Company of Fools by making a donation in any amount via our podcast platform or online at svmoa.org. In this episode, I have the great pleasure of talking with the lovely and hilarious Mondi Koshnevison. Mondi is an actor, educator, and multifaceted theater artist currently based in Portland, Oregon, where she's an associate artist at Bag and Baggage Productions and a member of the performing ensemble at Funhouse Lounge. She studied theater, literature, and history at Stanford University and has been performing and teaching improv since 1996. On the improv side, she worked for years with Bats Improv and the Unscripted Theater Company, specializing in directing and performing in improvised full-length plays and musicals. She has improvised around the country, including at the New York Musical Improv Festival and the Chicago Improv Festival with shows that she created. In the scripted acting realm, her favorite recent roles include Lady Capulet in Romeo and Juliet, Leila and Majnoon, Polina in Death and the Maiden, and Margaret Dogberry in Much Ado About Nothing, among many, many more. She also teaches theater, directs, choreographs, builds puppets, designs costumes, does lighting, does some voice acting, and in general, is just sort of really busy, although maybe a little bit less at this time. She recently published her first book, Managed Mischief, about improvisation and creativity. Hey, Mondi, I am so happy to hear your voice. Welcome to Foolish Voices. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. How are <laughs> you? Are you well and healthy? I am. Uh, so far, so good. Uh, all, all is well here in Portland, Oregon. Um, I'm doing all right. My family's all right. Uh, although since my parents live in Southern California there and they can't see me, they're understandably <laughs> worried. <Panicked. but> yeah. <laughs> and if I remember cl- correctly, your parents are delightfully overbearing. Is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would, I would say that. <laughs> So have you, uh, what has been the impact on your creative work as a result of this ridiculous pandemic that we're going through? Aha. So (laughs) a lot of my creative work is in schools. Um, I was um, in whenever that was mid-March, 500 years ago. uh, We were uh, scheduling the, the summertime. Uh, We had summer camp. I was working on, I was, right in the middle of the rehearsal process for a show we were going to do with 60 kids at a uh, 65th graders at an elementary school. And that was the first thing to get canceled before they shut down the schools and everything else for real. So it was sort of a, sort of a time release action, really. (laughs) (laughs) You now have more time than you know what to do with go forth and use it well. Yes. So first there was the schools and then it was the production that I was in and then sort of like a slow, like a slow avalanche. Right. So what about, what about, tell, tell our listeners about, um, 
about the Funhouse Lounge. What what is the Funhouse Lounge? <laughs> so the Funhouse Lounge is a venue in Southeast Portland um, that is sort of a, a, a catch-all sort of cabaret for uh, improv. It was started originally by uh, Andy Barrett, and he um, he started this bar slash performing venue because he wanted a place to perform improv. So it grew from there and the, um, it's sort of an underground kind of pop culture nostalgia vibe. We do sort of half improvised shows and half scripted shows, um, such, such scripted work as Die Hard, the parody musical, uh, Back to the Future, the parody musical. <laughs> In which you starred as Biff, is that correct? Yes. <laughs> And from what I hear, I never had an opportunity to see it, but from what I hear, you nailed it. <laughs> Your performance as Biff in Back to the Future, the musical parody, was uh, one for the for the history books. <laughs> You're <Would> too you... <laughs> kind. <laughs> well, I didn't see it. I'm just telling you what people told me. <laughs> so, so Funhouse has this really fantastic reputation for being sort of wacky and kooky and they're big, they take a lot of risks and you kind of really never know what you're going to see there, but it's a, mostly sort of focused on improvised or, or improv comedy or long form improv comedy, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Andy's been getting more into scripted uh, theater lately, but the the vibe, because, you know, audiences, when they come see a show, they don't really care whether there's a script or not, as long as they're having a nice time. So we kind of fold in, there's kind of a spectrum between scripted shows, scripted shows that have some improv built in, improv shows that have some planned moments in them, and then just sort of pure improv. Um but it's always sort of wacky and pop culture-y and uh, uh, there to give the audience a good time. <laughs> well, that's nice. And, you know, I, I can remember you and I had this long conversation wh- where my job was on the floor when you told me about your experience with the Unscripted Theater Company. Yes. Where you would literally direct and perform full length improvised plays and musicals mm-hmm. why why would you do that why why, why would you put yourself through that <laughs> <laughs> well you know uh i mean christian uh christian Hutzman, who is one of the the founders of that company um would say whenever people would ask him he'd say well we don't uh we don't feel like we want to write a script <laughs> <laughs> And then we're kind of lazy. We're just kind of yeah. lazy. Right. And then people would be like, we would get people a lot of times who were really suspicious that we improvised the whole thing. And our response was always like, um, two things. First, do you think if we had the choice to memorize something that we would memorize that? <laughs> <laughs> so give me give me an example. Like what what is what what actually is a full-length improvised play? So, uh, so the Unscripted Theater Company was um, founded with the the sort of the mission that it would be just like a regular theater company, except uh, the plays would not be uh, scripted. So we had a season. We did um, between, depending on the year, between three and five shows a year, and so we would kind of we would plan out the season. So. Uh, so for example, a very popular Christmas show that we used to do, our holiday show was uh, Let It Snow. So we would sort of 
design design the show what belongs in the show what doesn't belong in the show um what the sort of genre of the show would be because we we used to think of every everything everything as being a genre um whether you know i think we 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 pretty much decided that every every piece of theater or sketch or anything could sort of be described as being in a genre. So we would really try to hone in what the genre of the show was. And then we would rehearse based on the building blocks of what we figured would go in that show. And we would usually create, we would create formats and sometimes we would do them again and we would um, sort of workshop what went well last time and what didn't. And so we, um, through through extensive study and <laughs> practice with um, storytelling structure, um, storytelling structure in different genres, how to make someone a protagonist, how to be a side character, um, how to build, how to be an actor, a director, and a playwright at the same time, we would all sort of collectively create a story according to the genre um and then we would to and then we had a lighting improviser who would decide when the scenes were over hmm. which is very important <laughs> um so we would it, it would behave as if it were a play some plays it's a one act lights up lights down at the end of the act some plays are have a lot of fast cutting so we would decide what the rhythm of the scene breaks would be and the lighting improviser's job was to watch the show as if they were both a playwright and an audience member. Because you can tell when a scene is over. <laughs> yes, you can. Usually it's, when, it's usually when the improv actors are just sort of like holding still and looking at yes. each other and not saying anything. Yes, I did. We did cultivate also. I mean, sometimes it's sometimes you want to cut in the middle of an action and sometimes it's like, and this was the last line of that scene. <laughs> and then you just and if the lighting of, designer yeah. doesn't take their cue from that. You need a different lighting designer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's hilarious. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I mean, so honestly, I mean, you and I have had this conversation. Yeah. I am not, I am not, uh, improv does not speak to me as a theater <laughs> artist. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, I have, I have enjoyed some improv performances <laughs> in my time, but it is not my sort of go-to uh, kind of live performance. Yeah. Why, why is it yours? <laughs> um, I had... Hmm, that's a great question. Good. I think I had <laughs> I'm real good at this. Well done. <laughs> Thanks. Well done, Scott Terry Gross Palmer. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I had a really great improv teacher in in college, Patricia Ryan Madsen, um, who author of the book Improv Wisdom, which just turned 15 years old this year. Oh, congratulations. Happy birthday. <laughs> and she, I think because of that, I was I was in sort of the um I was in the kind of student run scrappy improv group when I was a freshman. I was, I had terrible, 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 terrible stage fright uh, as a child. Um, I think once I turned, once I went to school, I think I got really I, terrible, sweaty palms, terrible crippling stage fright. 
It's so uh, weird. I mean, (laughs) knowing you now, I mean, you're not, you're not a small child anymore. No, Um, no. But knowing you now, that is like, would be the very last thing on the list of characteristics I would describe you as having. Hooray. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like, I mean, I think improv really busted me out of that. Um, Because I was, if, if anyone who knew me up through high school would have said, used one word to describe me, it would have been shy and possibly Mm quiet <laughs> um but uh so i but yeah improv i think because i always kind of wanted to be in theater but i had terrible stage fright so i didn't do a lot of it and uh doing improv in college kind of i was standing i was standing backstage i was playing rosie in bye bye birdie in our dining hall production of bye bye birdie <laughs> at Stanford and I we, we were we were I think it was opening night and there we I was standing backstage and I was thinking wait we've only run through this show with the orchestra one time <laughs> we are performing this in a dining hall in front of our friends I am playing a very important part which is uh relatively new for me and I was like why am I not nervous at all <laughs> And like improv made it dis- just dissolve. Just now I have no stage fright. And now theater is my job, which is so weird. That is weird. <laughs> it's really weird. I think because, you know, as a as a person who de- developed into a, an adult by being somewhat of a perfectionist, I think you get really scared that you're going to mess up. Mm-hmm. And so doing some really, you know, stupid, stupid freshman year. Basically, it was the kids leading the kids because our our group consisted of a bunch of freshmen and two sophomores who had been in the group the year before. Oh, so so deep, deep history and training yes, for exactly. such, such leadership roles. Exactly. Uh, and, and, and we did, because of the way that Stanford works, they have a lot of... Um, in the dorms, you have a house, everyone has a house meeting every Wednesday and they have to bribe people to come to the shows with entertainment. So we would, even though we were just a bunch of people just kind of fucking around, we had a show every week in a dorm. (laughs) And so just, just, just continuously practicing here we are, what's going to happen? I don't know. What if it's bad? No one will care. Kind of eroded all that stage fright potential away, I guess. It's a miracle cure. (laughs) It is. It is. So then, so once you sort of got your, your absolutely paralyzing fear (laughs) of being in front of people over with, you started to turn your attention to more traditional sort of scripted mm-hmm. acting, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I uh, I think we tried to make our improvised plays feel scripted, and we tried to, conversely, I think I try to, I try to make the scripted stuff feel as present as if it were being improvised. This is my is my mantra (laughs) yeah i mean so one of the things that i know is is very much true of the actors like yourself and andrew beck and ian armstrong and others that i have worked with who have a a pretty strong background in improv is that there is 
a degree to which improv brings a sense of immediacy and <clears throat> first time every time mm -hmm. to performances, right? Which is something yeah. that a lot of actors who don't have an improv background or haven't really been trained in that way that they, they can struggle with, right? Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, um, I went basically from doing hardcore improv, improv all the time, unscripted, to I was in a show at the uh, San Francisco Playhouse, who was our landlord. We had the little space. They had the big space down the hall. And I was in My Fair Lady. Uh, and we did 75 performances of that show. Oh, my God. So I went <clears throat> from an entirely new script and sometimes with songs included every night <laughs> for months and years right before that to immediately jumping into a 75 show run of my fair lady and i thought wow i mean i've done i've done scripted shows before but never 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 approaching 75 i think the most before that was 12 <laughs> of the same show and i thought can i can i can i do it Will I go crazy? What will happen? And I, after 75 shows, I realized, yeah, yeah, I could have done, I could have done more of them at the end when everyone started to go a little bit crazy because <laughs> we did six shows a week. Um, That's and hardcore. I, yeah, yeah. Tuesday through Saturday, twice on Saturday. <clears throat> and... Uh, <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> but it was really a great lesson in like, in like, it's the same every night, but also because that part is so solid, everything that's happening during the same thing is still so different every night. Right. So right. that was a great, that was a great lesson to learn. Yeah. I mean, it's always, you know, you've, you've been directed by me and I often sort of say, I want them to have the same show that the audience last night had, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Which is this sort of urge on the part of artistic directors to have consistency. But yeah. at the same time, my, my next favorite note is it should never be the same, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Make sure that's the first time every time. But I, and yeah. I do, and I do feel like some of the best actors that I've worked with who have that ability to kind of keep it fresh and make it immediate and really respond mm -hmm to what's happening in the moment, each performance are the, are the folks that have an improv background. So good job, you. Woohoo! Way to, way to focus on it. Um, oh, how, did you, how, how did you get introduced to Bag and Baggage Productions? Well, <laughs> I, uh, I, got, I got introduced to Bag and Baggage Productions. Um, I went to the PADA auditions, actually for the first time, and I got invited to a callback for Romeo and Juliet slash Layla and Majnoon. And interestingly, it was a show that I had seen the audition notice go by for before and thought, I am not Persian enough for that show. <laughs> I think you're just Persian enough for that show. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, why, did great you think, honor. why did you think that? I don't know, you know, because it said, uh, I think the audition notice was really aiming for, it was also like, I hadn't done any professional auditions in for scripted stuff in town yet. So there was a little bit of that ooh, imposter syndrome. And the, I think the, uh, whatever the audition notice said was really, really going hard. It was like, it's like looking for versions, Farsi preferred. It's like a job interview. And you're yeah. like, you know, they're like, aim high. And I was like, oh, I don't know. Ooh, <laughs> that ooh. might be a little high. 
so can you tell, I mean, I could certainly do this, but, yes. but no one's here to listen to me. They're more mostly interested to listen to the interesting people that I invite on the podcast. What was Romeo and Juliet, Layla Majnoon? And if you get it wrong, don't worry, I'll step in and correct you. <laughs> no pressure. So as bag and baggage, as you may be aware, is wont to do, <laughs> uh, it is an adaptation of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, but in this particular case, it was a sort of hybrid of Shakespeare's text and the text of the poet Nizami, which was perhaps one of the sources that Shakespeare used to write Romeo and Juliet. Did I get it right? You did, good job. I, ding, I, ding, ding. Yes, so it was, it sort of incorporated, it was a mashup between Romeo yeah. and Juliet and Nizami's uh, Leyla and Majnun, which is a sort of similar-ish kind of story, love cross, mm -hmm. star-crossed lovers and all that kind of business. Um, but obviously one of the great works of ancient Persian literature. So mm -hmm. we did this crazy mashup of <laughs> Romeo, Juliet, and Leila Majnun, and you were just crazy enough to want to audition for it. Woohoo! Thanks for doing that. <laughs> when, I got, when I got to the callbacks, I looked around and I thought, hmm... When are Super all these people going to leave? Well, I was like, I was like, when are all these people going to leave? Because these people are my people. <laughs> Everybody else can go home. <laughs> right. Uh, and you very quickly discovered that you were more than Persian enough to. I did. <laughs> so can you just tell, tell us and my listeners a, a little bit more about sort of your Persian heritage? Uh, so my dad is from Iran. Um, hello, dad. Hi, dad. <laughs> And so, yeah, uh, I grew up in L.A. I'd never been there, but my dad is from Iran. My mom is from Michigan. They met in a canoe. Wait, what? How, <laughs> what? Just like my, randomly? <laughs> yep, basically. My dad, uh, my dad went, to, uh, went to college in the United States, and my mom went to Michigan State. So they met. They were both in the outing club at Michigan State University, and they met in a canoe see, so the story goes see that's i love that story <laughs> so the story goes you're not 100 percent convinced that that's actually what happened well i wasn't there but, <laughs> but i hear yeah um so yeah i mean i i, I loved having you in uh in Romeo and juliet Leila Majnun, which was a a really fantastic production for us, and then you went on to perform. You've been you've been in a whole bunch of other stuff with Bag and Baggage, right? I have. I'm a I am officially an associate artist, and uh, I don't know if this is secret information, but they just let me into the rack. <gasps> they did. <laughs> they well, did. I mean, I, I don't know. I, no one listens to this podcast, so <laughs> no one will hear. Uh, but that is awesome. Congratulations! Yay, so thank you. Moved up from that associate artistic that associate artist group into what is Bag and Baggage has as a resident acting company. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. It just took me leaving for you <laughs> to finally get the credit you deserved. <laughs> uh, so, um, so yeah, I mean, you you were also you were the lead in Death and the Maiden, which yes. Uh, one of my favorite plays and it was a fantastic production um and we also then had the opportunity to 
collaborate again on another sort of cross-cultural mashup that we did, um, which was the Island in Winter, uh, yes. which is part of the Problem Play Project at Bag and Baggage, a project that asks sort of emerging artists of color to adapt Shakespeare's works with a sort of um, sort of diversity and equity and inclusion lens. Uh, what, how did you, how did you uh, enjoy your time in the island in winter? I liked it a lot. I, I, uh, I really, I really liked Leila and Majnoon and the feeling of sort of making Shakespeare into a thing that people didn't, didn't know what they were going to see before they came to it. And I think the same with Island in Winter. Um, I, I feel like, uh, I feel like new um, new work is always exciting to work on because it's everybody is kind of digging into it at the same time. So everybody gets to kind of be the expert on it. It was also really fun because it was bilingual and uh, it was really, I was, I was not in any scenes where I got to speak Spanish. <laughs> no, no, you <laughs> but uh, it, it was a really, it was a really fun show and it was gorgeous. The costumes yeah. were gorgeous and the lights and the projections were gorgeous and the set was gorgeous. Um, and it was a really, it was really, it was really fun because it felt sort of important and a little bit cheeky at the same time. Right. No, I would agree. I think that's good. Yeah. True. I mean, you know, as an artist of color, uh, one of the thing, <clears throat> one of the things I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on is, you know, we, I think everyone who works in the professional performing arts right now is absolutely abjectly terrified at, about what, what's going to happen to us as we move forward. And I can tell you that one of the things I worry about is that uh, the sort of quote, and I'm doing giant air quotes on this, <laughs> sort of like risk taking of doing, you know, uh, diverse shows and providing a diversity of voices that that sort of risk quote unquote mm -hmm. that theaters have been taking for a number of years nowhere yeah. near as much as they should right nowhere near yeah. as much as they should that there's going to be a real return to kind of more conservative less risk-taking work do, mm. you, do you worry about that or is it just me feeling white and guilty because <laughs> that's entirely possible <laughs> Oh gosh, it's hard to say. I mean, I think it's it's a little it's a little bit meta. It reminds me of the thing I just said. Um, I feel like it, because this is happening in to various degrees all over the world. I feel like whatever new work is happening, everybody is kind of it's a it's a new it's it is a collective global sort of new work that everybody is figuring out at the same time, and so. I think no one is an expert on it yet. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we just did uh, the Bag and Baggage and Linestorm playwrights. We just did the uh, Sequestered Soliloquies, which was a really fun project. It was a 24-hour monologue project where the playwrights kind of rolled the dice and they wrote... They wrote a script in 12 hours and then they they rolled the dice for what actor they were going to get. And then the actors rolled a dice for what director they were going to get. And then the project was directed and filmed and put out all within 24 hours. And I we've done two of them so far. We did two rounds. And it was fascinating to me how many different ways 
there were to to do a monologue or to present to present a piece that happened to be captured by the computer and it feels so limiting it's such a strange little um strange little box but i feel like i feel like the things that resonated with the playwrights are are sort of themes that have been overlooked not necessarily overlooked but i mean no one's ever been in this situation before really right, in right. recent memory uh and so the things the things that i saw resonating with individual mm. playwrights and within the project as a whole sort of as their collective brain sort of different than what different than what theater maybe has to offer in the canon so far and i don't know that collective let me see I was, where was i going okay I so know. here's where, here's where i'm I was still going. listening it's very fascinating <laughs> here's okay i had this thought a couple of days ago and i was like remember this this is good um <laughs> <laughs> i feel like when when people when the then when the world was open theater companies kind of put on everyone's mind is sort of in a different place people are scattered uh each company can kind of think about its own sort of personal trajectory what they might find interesting literature and da, da, da. and i feel like uh it's it's fascinating even just watching television and reading books in this current situation what feels relevant and what feels astonishingly out of touch yeah even there was a moment Brian and I were watching, my husband Brian and I were watching TV the other night and there was a group hug. Uh-huh. And, and we both just looked at each other and we were like, well, that's not going to happen again, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Who would have thought just suddenly, randomly, we both had the same instinct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I will put, I'll put a link to the Bag and Baggage so, uh, Sequestered Soliloquies on here too. Uh, mm-hmm. So people who are listening to the podcast can kind of check it out. Um but I mean, are you, so essentially what I think you're saying is that this opportunity, this moment is for a number of artists really opening them up to the possibility of a different approach, different themes, different content, um, because we've never experienced it before. It, it opens us up to an opportunity to not have to keep doing what we've done before, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think especially in the moment where you know the mask wearing and the 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 sequestration is is kind of a, a for all of us kind of movement i think um it seems at least it seems likely slash hopefully that when people are thinking about what to what to offer to the community in terms of theater is taking that these sorts of feelings and issues into account and also thinking of what what do all of us what do all of us want to see maybe yeah i i i hear you i that is my hope right yeah 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 um you know (laughs) i i'm struck (laughs) by this opportunity where you know, we're, we are all having producers and producing artistic directors are all having these conversations about the sort of financial viability mm-hmm. of theater in the, in the coming six to eight months. And one of the things that I'm hearing pretty consistently all, all over the place is we are not financially viable. 
<laughs> right? Like, mm-hmm. don't, don't yeah. try and don't try and be. It's just not going to be possible, right? It's, yeah. mm-hmm. We don't know what's going to happen. You know, does can a professional theater survive for the next year if they are the maximum number of people you can have in your theater is thirty? Yeah. Right? Like, is there any way that that can be financially profitable or or even sustainable? And there is a moment where I think about that, where I tense up and go, oh my God, we're all going to die. <laughs> and then the moment after that is a release where I go, oh, well, we can do whatever we want then because it yeah. doesn't really matter, yeah. right? Uh, it, that is my hope too, that it just sort of opens us up to the possibility that this is a moment for us to reconsider the model mm-hmm. of how we do nonprofit theater in this country. Um, yeah. I God, I hope people do that. Do you think they will, or are they just going to be dumb? <sighs> I mean, I have dumb. to believe. I mean, <laughs> people might be dumb in the short term. <laughs> I mean, I mean, theater has lasted for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and I have to, I have to believe that uh, that the things, the things that come out of the fire are going to last. I mean, yeah. I mean. You know, I was I was reading an article about, you know, there are all these articles about what was happening during the 1918 flu pandemic. And they said, yes, the, the Marx Brothers released a new stage show during the pandemic and people came to it in masks and they sat every other seat. And they said, it was determined that the quality of the play was what caused it to close and not the quarantine <laughs> itself. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. That makes, <laughs> that makes me happy to hear. Um, Right. It wasn't the potential infectious deadly disease that made people not come back. It was because sometimes even the Marx Brothers weren't that funny, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, have you at all been, uh, what's your response been to these things where people are like, well, even Shakespeare wrote King Lear during the middle of a plague. And I go, yeah. well, not all of us are Shakespeare, honey, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. Um, yeah. I mean, eh, like, yeah, I don't know. I think I think there are different there are different motivators but behind creation and performance. And if and if and if what you have is, you know, I'm sure lots of people wrote lots of terrible plays during the plague. Right. <laughs> that we don't remember anymore. I mean, um it's not uh like things are things are going to survive if they're good. People, do, I mean, it's like it's like improv. Uh, I've done lots and lots of terrible improv scenes and shows over the past twenty five years, and I remember some of them. Um, but it's the good ones that you yeah. Started, it's the good it's, ones people mention. Yeah, yeah. It's not the it's not the bad ones. You know, if if you, but it's not like it. But it's not like the bad ones caused anybody any harm. Right. You know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's like, it's like you can, we're not going to, what I I guess what I mean is we're not going to beat ourselves up about those. Like you create things that want to come out and sometimes you're having a good day and sometimes you're not. And sometimes it's cooking and sometimes it's not, but there is no pressure to like if it's there it'll just blow away in the wind if it's so that's okay yeah so you're not you're not of the of the camp that says bad online theater equals reduction in people's interest in attending theater in the future i mean i i i honestly think like 
that's funny because it's exactly what it's exactly what Christian would say about improv. He'd say, well, someone will I'll say, come to my improv show, and they'll be like, Oh, I saw an improv once. I didn't care for it. <laughs> um, but I think I mean on, online theater is tricky because I feel like the format, if you just try to translate the format directly onto the computer, it's just not necessarily gonna gonna work and necessarily like oh i'll pretend to be in the same scene as you this will make perfect sense like right <laughs> i feel like that's trying mm. to sort of reverse engineer something because i mean that's part of like the sequestered soliloquies like i was i was astounded how many different ways there were for people to, like i said to talk to the camera um and i think working within that limitation or finding things that really fit that idiom is gonna help yeah well it's it's the difference between literally i i i mention this all the time and on these podcast interviews with people and i go i got an invitation to watch somebody read the seagull on a zoom call and i was like hell no no thank you i, <laughs> yeah. I mean i could read the seagull alone in my home and it'll yeah. be just as good but but if someone were to say, hey, we've done an adaptation of the seagull, which takes into account the fact that it is a Zoom call and we've adapted it and it's specifically focused to the nuances of this of this vehicle, yeah. I might be more inclined, right? Yeah. I might be more inclined to see what creative people can do to adapt theater to these challenging times and to the and to among, you know, only the very few mechanisms we have to deliver live storytelling to people, I am inclined. Sequestered soliloquies, I was inclined because it was intentionally a, a theatrical uh, project that was intentionally designed to be delivered via Zoom, right? Yeah, via, yeah. Via the computer. Yeah, I think the question is really, is, is vibrating in the moment, is this relevant? <laughs> Right. Is this relevant? I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, at Company of Fools, we we had the first, you know, the first four days of of our of our shelter in place was all of us on Zoom calls going, oh, we could do this and we could do that and we could blah blah blah. And I was like, we should do my we should do my Macbeth. It's only got five people. And then within about 42 hours, we were like, no, <laughs> no, it's just it's just not something we're interested mm -hmm. in. And we didn't find ourselves as artists sort of really inclined or leaning toward trying to embrace online performance as a vehicle yeah. that reflects our aesthetic and our notion of storytelling that doesn't mean to say that you know other theater organizations that are doing this and doing it really thoughtfully shouldn't continue and could potentially spark our interest but it's just not what we do right it's just yeah. not and we as a group of artists were like meh no thanks i think we're good yeah. um yeah. so yeah i mean i i my hope and and i i dread to say this to you because it gives you and your improv colleagues far more credit than I think you deserve is that that willingness to be open and thoughtful and respond in the moment um, and not be kind of limited to a proscenium space and to a, a scripted play mm -hmm. that kind of ethos is exactly what theater artists need right now is to see a challenge respond to it authentically and ask whether or not it's relevant right mm -hmm. yeah. so it's all on you <laughs> the future of our industry is all in the hands of improv performers. I knew it. <laughs> you knew this day would come. I've been preparing for this all my life.
<laughs> Literally. <laughs> so what do you what do you hope happens? Like what is your big hope for for theater and, and the performing arts? What do you hope is the result of this madness? Hmm. Let's Free see. Free cake for everyone. <laughs> Free cake. That's what I think. Um, I mean, I hope that it the 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 current crisis or whatever you want to call it um helps theater companies hone what their mission is and what what story they want to tell and i hope that as people come back out blinking in the light <laughs> Out of out of Plato's cave, um, that they. I mean, people are going to be looking for other people, and I think that I want theater to be there for them to help reflect their story in a way that will resonate and will. And we'll bind them ever tighter <laughs> to the world of live theater. I mean, I mean, I think like, I think it's going to be weird to figure out what those new stories are going to be, but I think they're not going to be the same. And I think it's a, it's everyone's working on this new work together, whether it's old stuff reimagined or or what, but I feel like it's it's gonna be a slightly new story that we're gonna have to tell people to get them to come. Yeah, <clears throat> I agree. I mean, I, I, I that is my hope too. My hope is that people resist the urge to return to conservative safe choices. Resi yeah. Resist that. This yeah. is a moment of deep risk and we should embrace that risk. It's what we do. <clears throat> we are risk-taking, we are a risk-taking art form. So resist yeah. that, that drive to sort of, suddenly start saying, well, we're a theater company that does entertainment for people, right? Like focus in yeah. on your mission. What do you do that's yeah. unique? And push, right? Like people yeah. are gonna want something new. And and I mean, I think probably people are gonna wanna laugh and they're gonna have a good time mm -hmm. and they're gonna want hope. But I don't think that means that we, that we can, that we have to avoid being risky, right? Yeah. We can take risks and, and I think, you're right. People are going to want that, and they're going to want electricity mm -hmm. and engagement and and uh, connection. So yeah, I and agree. I, and, and I think um, I think there may be people who I'm I'm just going to go ahead and and decide this is true. There may be people who have not been theater watchers before who are going to want to go to a place where people are doing something together, and I think that. Those and I think people are going to be like like they have to be sort of curators of their own experience, as in like reading aloud the seagull. No, like <laughs> they're right. gonna, not they're doing gonna, it. Yeah, they're going to figure out what they've they've been now. They're curating what is gonna what their entertainment possibilities are now that they're kind of in their house. And I think when they leave, they're going to still bring that sort of curatorial eye so that what theater companies are gonna offer is gonna have to be sort of investigative and tuned in to what 
what will spark the interest of a people who've been through a strange sort of fire. Yeah. It, it might be the sound of music, but maybe not. not. <laughs> maybe not. Yeah. Right. Like as I love that image of people sort of like coming out of the platonic cave and blinking their eyes in the sun and turning to each other and saying, sound of music. Well, that's what we need. And maybe they will. I mean, you know, I might go watch Shadow Music right now for all I yeah. know. Um, but I agree with you. I think I think it's a chance to, as theater pr practitioners have always done, embrace our circumstances and lead. Yeah. Right? And lead. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's a sort of a frenzy to, uh, for people to be like, oh my God, I got to perform something. I got to, uh, uh, like all this sort of online content that people are generating. But I think the things that work the best are when people are working together. Yeah. To, yeah. To, they're working together to make something. And that is what, that is what is always the greatest thing about theater. <laughs> and I think that that, when people come back together, I think that's, connection is only gonna is only gonna help that i agree i think you're real smart good job thanks you're welcome thanks. <laughs> uh my name is scott palmer i am producing artistic director of company of fools and this has been foolish voices if you have enjoyed my conversation with mondi and i know you have please consider supporting company of fools by making a donation in any amount via our podcast platform or online at our parent organization, that is the Sun Valley Museum of Art, at their website, that is svmoa.org. Mondi is an actor, educator, and a multifaceted theater artist who, the news is out now, friends, is now a resident artist at Bag and Baggage Productions. She's a member of the resident acting company. She's been a member of the performing ensemble at Funhouse Lounge. She's a fantastically hilarious and funny improviser and just an all-around cool kid who I like a lot. Will you uh, Will you please accept my gratitude for spending in 45 minutes with me on Foolish Voices, Mondi? I accept and return said gratitude. Uh, and I will put a link to Funhouse Lounge. I will put a link to Sequestered Soliloquies. And I will also put a link to your recently published book, Managed Mischief, about improvisation and creativity. So people can go online and buy it. And you can, make some, you can make some money and stuff. Okay. Sound good? Thank you so much. You're welcome. Uh, and will you please keep in touch and let me know how you're doing? Yes, indeed. Okay, thank you for joining us and we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Okay, bye. Bye.